Well, good morning, Riverside. Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. And uh, Pastor Dan is enjoying some well-deserved vacation time this morning. He's spending some time with his family. Let's keep him in our prayers and many other families that are traveling this weekend as well. But we are glad that you're here, that we can worship together, pray together. And for the next 40, 45 minutes, we want to dig into the Word of God together. So, have you ever observed something that was so beautiful that it just took your breath away? And you, you just stand there trying to take it all in. And as hard as you try, it's just like, it's so magnificent. You almost can't imagine. And, and just one of those moments. And so... Maybe it was like a special event in your life. And for me, one of those moments I think of was my wedding day. I will never forget when I was standing in front of that church and I look and into the door of the church in the aisle steps my father-in-law with my bride on his arm. And it was just like, <gasps> my heart was full. It was, just, it was just one of those times of awe of the gift that God had given me. Or I think of when our first child was born and the doctor handed me that little baby girl. And I'm like, oh, it was, it was just took my breath away. It was just so beautiful. Or more recently, when our first grandbaby was born, I think I passed that up. Uh-oh, can't pass him up. There he is. It just, it was something I had, I just never expected. That little guy came and surprised me this week, a surprise visit. It was so precious. But those are moments where I've experienced just this beauty that I can hardly grasp. Or maybe think about a place of scenic beauty. You know, if you've ever stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon, just the grandeur of that place, you just look at it. It's like 250 miles long and 18 miles wide and a mile deep. It just breathtaking. I tried this week to think back at the most beautiful scenery I've ever observed. And some of you have traveled a lot more than I have, but if I had to pick just one place, it would have to be a place called Matangi Island. And it's a small little private island in Fiji, and we had the blessing of traveling there for our 25th anniversary all the way back in 2010. And this little island is just a ring of, of hills, and in the middle is what's called Horseshoe Bay. And Horseshoe Bay is just an aquarium of clear water filled with colorful sea life, these giant clams and, and soft coral that blooms and... Part of staying at this little place, there were only a dozen little bungalows around the outside of the island, but they give you a day where they take you into Horseshoe Bay by boat and they leave you there with the radio and a picnic lunch and you have the entire thing for your, to yourself for the day. What do you do with that? <laughs> we found plenty to do. It was awesome. And, and I'm just standing there looking at this bay going, oh, Lord, this is breathtaking. This is amazing. Well, as we continue this morning in our study of 1 John, we come to a passage that inspires awe. Truly inspires awe. It has to be among the most beautiful truths ever written about. And we just need to pause and even try to take it in. Because it's so beautiful, I think we struggle to even get our minds around it. It Anything I described before, events and scenic places, they pale in comparison to the beauty of these truths. And so with that as an introduction, we're continuing in our series called Absolute Certainty. And the message this morning is absolute certainty of our adoption. And we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3 in the first three verses. And the outline has three parts. We'll look at the fact that's what we are now in verse 1. The future, what we will be in verse 2. And the faithful, what we should be in verse 3. 
And so we're going to spend most of our time unpacking the first point, um, but we'll work our way through all three. And I want to just start by reading these three verses together. It says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this passage that we just read is something so beautiful that it's even beyond our ability to fully grasp. And yet every word of it is true because these are your words and your word is truth, God. You've never lied. You never will lie. And so, God, we take you at your word. And as we meditate on this truth, God, help it to penetrate our hearts and our minds and sink deeply into our souls that we might be changed forever by the transforming power of your love and your grace. And so, God, we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin with the fact, what we are now. In verse 1, this verse begins with this powerful statement. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And yet, one of the most important words in that verse is missing. At least in my translation, the NIV. And it's greatly diminished even in the ESV translation. And if it were there, it would be the very first word of the verse. But it's not in mine. For whatever reason, many translators have failed to capture it. But if you have an old King James or a new King James Bible, you'll see this word there, the very first word, and it's this. Behold. Behold. Yeah, somebody has it. Behold, the new King James says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. We don't use that word, behold much anymore. And it's a shame. Behold, it's a Greek word, ido. And it literally means to pause and gaze at with eyes wide open. You could say my translation, Paul's new translation, just look and be amazed. Stop and marvel at what you see. That's the sense of this word. Stop, marvel, be amazed, take it in. And so if your translation doesn't have the word behold, I recommend just writing it in there right at the very beginning. Put a little character, behold, comma. Because that's what this passage says. That's what it's instructing us to do, to stop, marvel, and be amazed. At what? At how great is the, Father's, is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So, how great is that love? If we stop and think about it, how great is the love of the Father? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is what Jesus said. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend, right? John 15, 13. That's one of the greatest sacrifices a person could ever make. To lay down their life for someone else. I heard about a bride and a groom who were at their wedding reception. And the bride asked, do you really love me, honey? He said, of course, you know I love you. And she said, would you die for me? And she said, no, honey. He said, no, honey, mine is an undying love. <laughs> People talk a lot about their willingness to die for someone. But that type of sacrifice is actually quite rare. Romans uh, 5 Verses 7 8 say this Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. It's rare that someone will die for a righteous man or even a good man. 
But what Jesus did was unprecedented. See, he was the only truly righteous person who ever lived. And yet, he died for the unrighteous, for sinners like you and me, for those who hated him, were his enemies. But is this all God did? That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Is that all that God did? I mean, it sounds really depreciative. Is that all God did? Because this exhortation calls us to consider God's love. Is that all he did was lay down his life for us? It's actually not. There's so much more to his love. Because before he could even lay down his life, he had to first lay down the privileges of his deity. He had to empty himself of the glory that was rightfully his. He went from heaven where he's worshipped into a world where he is hated. He went right into the realm of Satan. This world, the prince of this world is Satan. This is his realm right now. He went right into the middle of that. And then suddenly, Jesus is surrounded by every kind of sin. Within days of his birth, the king was trying to kill him. And it wouldn't end there. Philippians 2, 6 and 8. You know this passage well. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of the servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It wasn't just any death. It emphasized even death on a cross. That is the, probably one of the cruelest, most torturous forms of punishment that mankind has ever come up with. And he, he, he wouldn't just killed by a sword. Oh, that he would have been, you know, that would have been, I think, merciful compared to the suffering of a cross. And yet, before he died, the sins of the whole world were placed upon him. I've made this point before that the physical agony of the cross was nothing compared to the pain, the spiritual agony of having your sins and my sin and the sin of the whole world over all of time placed upon a man who knew no sin. The pain that sin brings and it was all placed on him. So we have this sacrifice of mind-boggling proportions. And this in itself is the greatest act of love the world has ever known. But here's the thing. It didn't stop there. That's the point that this passage wants us to really try to soak in. He didn't just deliver us from the consequences of hell and just give us eternal life. He did this. He made us children of God. Children of God. That's the point of verse 1. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then it says emphatically, and that is what we are. We're children of God. Now again, this letter is written to the church, to believers. And that's a child of God, that's a special relationship that God has with those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody, I've said it many times, everybody is not a child of God. We're not all God's children, we're all his creation, but we're not. Not all people are God's children. John 1, 12 and 13, it's all who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we're not children of God by natural birth, new babies born. No, he's a child of God. No, he's not. He's a cute, adorable, precious little pagan <laughs> who's separated from God by sin. It's only those who believe. It's only through spiritual rebirth or what the Bible also refers to as adoption. That's a word we want to look at this morning. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Imagine being an adopted child of Almighty God. Think about that. If you're a believer, you are a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. The full rights of sons. If you've been born again, you have the full rights of sons. You ever stop and wonder, I wonder what that means? What are my rights? What are the privileges of being God's son? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, a relationship with God the Father. Romans 8.15 says, You received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The world can't do that. Abba is this Aramaic term of endearment. Our modern translation would be Daddy. See, with God as our Father, He loves us and cares for us and protects us and pours out His blessing upon us. Those who don't know His, do not know Him, do not have that relationship, they don't receive this type of love and benevolent care, the care of a father. But we do. Secondly, we have abundant eternal life. You know what Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's not just eternal like someday, that's now. We have eternal life. And it should be an abundant, full, meaningful, purpose, purposeful life. We have that. Anything less than life through Christ, it's just existing. It's not life. God wants us to have abundant, meaningful life. But third, we have this. We have a rich inheritance. A rich inheritance. Romans 17, Romans 8, 17 says this. Now, if we are children, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, and get this, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. Think about that as, as God's children we share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Wow. Well, this is the family of Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. I looked up his net worth. It's currently $109 billion. And he has one, two, three, four kids. This was his family until the divorce in April. After 25 years of marriage, he and his wife divorced. But that's his net worth. Here's Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. This was before his divorce last August and 27 years there. But he has three children that will inherit a portion of their father's $101 billion net worth. This is Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle. And he has two children. He's been married and divorced four times. These children are by his third wife. You see a pattern here? <laughs> Everyone I looked up almost has been divorced. But his children will inherit a portion of their father's $98 billion. It's quite an inheritance. Here's the family Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, now Meta. And his still current wife, they're still married after 10 years. I hope it stays that way. But his net worth has sunk to just $37 billion, down from $142 billion last year. Oh, I didn't change that. That's $37 billion. That whole meta thing hasn't been such a big hit. Can you imagine losing over $105 billion in one year? Well, someday his two children will inherit a portion of whatever's left. I don't know what meta will be worth in another 20, 30 years. But imagine being one of these children. These are the heirs and heiresses who are poised to inherit billions of dollars. That's billion with a B. Billions of dollars. But do you realize that as believers, we have it better than any of them? Amen. Amen. We are co-heirs with Christ. That which belongs to Jesus also belongs to us. Have you ever thought about that? Do you wonder what that inheritance might include? Well, I dug up some things in the Bible that tell us a little bit about this inheritance as co-heirs of Christ. First of all, this might surprise you, but we will share in his glory. That sounds odd. 
But let me read you a couple of verses. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what God says. He says in Romans 18, that verse I read goes on to say, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Co-heirs of his glory. Jesus said in John 17, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do we deserve to share in Christ's glory? No, we don't. But we will, because God has made us co-heirs with Christ by his grace alone. Co-heirs with Christ will also share in his riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? So that you might become rich. Co-heirs will share actually in all things. Listen to what Hebrews 1, 2 says. It says, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe if Christ is the heir of all things and we're co-heirs guess what we're going to share in the inheritance of all things does this boggle your mind this is what scripture says if you're a believer you are a co-heir of Jesus Christ Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That part we're, we're familiar with. But then it says, How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? All things. Do we deserve this? No. No. That's quite an inheritance. We're going to share in the glory of Christ, the riches of Christ, and in all things. And we have more than just an inheritance. We have the full rights of sons. Which includes a relationship with the Father. It includes abundant eternal life. That's how great the love of the Father is. He delights in transforming rebellious, undeserving, sinful people like me and you into his children. His children. Ephesians 3 says that this love is so great that we don't have the capacity to fully understand it because it surpasses knowledge. Let me read you that verse. Paul writes to the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints. That would include us to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this, get this, love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the, full, to the measure of all the fullness of God. It says we can't even get our mind around this. God's love is so great. No wonder verse 1 says, Behold, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We could just meditate on that for days, weeks on end to eternity and still never fully grasp how great God's love is for you and for me. But don't expect an unbelieving world to acknowledge that and celebrate that. Hey, you're God's child, you, woohoo! no, they're going to oppose you, they're going to ridicule you, they're even going to persecute you. Look at how the verse ends, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Pastor Dan spoke about this two weeks ago, did I get the right verse there, yeah, two weeks ago, when he was, when he was teaching from chapter 15 of John's gospel, same writer, but that was his gospel account. And it's where Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Does the world love you? I hope not. 
Because if it does, you belong to the world and not to the Lord. It says the world will hate you. See, the real aliens in this world are not extraterrestrials. They're not little green people. They're not E.T. And they're not even undocumented immigrants. The real aliens in this world are believers whose citizenship is in heaven. Pastor Dan said, the world loves those who live by its standards, but hates those that contradict their ideas and values. He said, don't expect people to act differently than how they believe. They hate the Lord, they'll hate you too. I said in our study of Nehemiah that expecting the world to treat you fairly because you're a good person is like expecting a bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. It ain't going to happen. It's the nature of the bull. It's the nature of an unbelieving world. They oppose you. They'll ridicule you. They will hate you. The world's not going to say, oh, I admire you Christians for the way you protect the unborn. It's so wonderful of you. Or I love the way you stick to God's assigned gender. And I love the way you stand for traditional marriage. Good for you. It's so virtuous. World's not going to say this, believer. They're going to oppose you. Now, it would be easy to feel defeated in a world that opposes us in that way. And in fact, sadly, many believers do. They feel defeated. They're downcast even. Remember, we were singing, why so downcast, oh my soul? Many believers struggle with their sense of identity and self-worth. Because they're listening to what the world says about them. They're looking for their approval from the world. But our sense of self-worth does not come from what the world says about us. It comes from what God says about us. What does he say about us? He says, I love you. I died for you. I adopted you. You are my child and you will share in the rich inheritance of the saints. That's where we got to find our identity. When you're feeling down, and I'm feeling down, we got to just focus on how great is the love of the Father that we should be called children of God. It's amazing. The story is told of a, a little boy who was standing on the bank of the Mississippi River as a steamboat was going by. He started waving his arms and calling out to it. And a, an adult stranger walked up to him and said, what are you doing? Eh, that steamboat's not going to stop for you. That Captain's far too busy to even notice you over there. Well, just about that time, the steamboat turned and came to shore. And the stranger was astounded. And the little boy looked at him and said, well, you see, there's something you don't know. The captain is my daddy. Yeah, we have a relationship with God. He is our daddy. The world doesn't know him. And so they don't know us. But we know him. Here's the fact. This first section is the fact. The fact is that for those who place their faith in Christ, we are right now children of God. So let's look at the future. What will we be? Well, that's verse 2. Dear friends, it says, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, this affirms that believers are children of God, and we have a guarantee of that. We talked about this in chapter 2. We have a guarantee, and that guarantee is the indwelling spirit of God. The indwelling spirit guarantees both our adoption and our inheritance. Let me read you two verses that highlight this. Romans 6.18 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That Spirit is our guarantee. In Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, get this, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is our guarantee of our adoption and of our, in of our inheritance. And so we know this says that we are children of God. We know that. Yet verse 2 says what we will be has not yet been made known. We all know everything about what we're going to be when he appears. Remember, that's when he comes back from his church. First, 
the resurrection of the dead in Christ followed by the rapture. That's when he appears. What we will be has not yet been made known. But we do have some hints. Because verse 2 continues. It says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Let's dig into that. It says, we will be like him. The plan of God ultimately is to transform every believer into the likeness of his son. We will be like him, like Christ. Romans 8 again, verses 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he, Jesus, might be the first among many brothers. We're going to be conformed into his likeness. And again, we don't fully know what that'll look like, but we have some hints in Scripture. That got ahead there. I'm going to back up. Um, we have on one hand glorified humanity. That's at the resurrection. Glorified humanity. And on the other hand, we have incarnate deity. God in Jesus Christ becoming man. And these two, somehow, there's going to be a likeness there. Glorified humanity, incarnate deity. We're going to be like him. We're not going to become deity. We're not going to be little gods like some religions teach. We won't. There's one God. But in many ways, we will be like Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose for every believer from before time began. Here's some of what we can know. We will become immortal. Immortal means not subject to death. Now that's interesting because the Bible says that God alone is immortal. That's in 1 Timothy 6.16. You and I are mortal in the sense that our present body will die. It will see death. Yet God will impart his immortality to us. And that'll happen when he gives us a resurrected body, a glorified body. That body will be immortal, meaning it will not be subject to death. You've heard this verse plenty of times. Think about it in this context. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Christian, you're going to be immortal. You're going to have an immortal body. And there's another passage that gives us more insight into this resurrected, glorified body. It continues in 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually verses 42 through 44. It says that the body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Well, I kind of create a little chart of these four things that we see in here comparing our current body to our resurrected and glorified body. First of all, it says we'll go from perishable to imperishable. That means there'll be no more sickness or death. A lot of scriptures back that up. It says, secondly, that we'll go from dishonor to glory. Which means, I believe, we'll have no more shame on account of sin. That'll be removed. We'll go from weakness to power. That refers to the fact that we'll no longer be subject to temptation. And in our glorified bodies, we'll go from natural to spiritual we won't be subject to the limitations of time and space. Just like Jesus was not in his resurrected body. So we don't know everything that we're going to be. But we get glimpses of it in scripture. It says that one thing we can know is that in some ways when he appears... We shall be like him. That's one thing. But then a second thing it says we can know is also in verse 2. That we shall see him as he is. Now 1 Corinthians 13. A famous chapter on love. Says this. It says in verse 12. Now, now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
So back then, mirrors, our mirrors are pretty good. They're like crystal clear. But back then, it was like a polished piece of metal. It was kind of hazy at best. And you see but a dim reflection. And you know what? It's not 3D. It's not face to face. But then we will see him face to face. We will get to see the full unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. The disciples got a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. We get to see him as he truly is. I don't think we could see him like that in this body. Because no man can really see the full unveiled glory of God and not die. Remember even Moses. God had to hide him in a little crevice of the rock while he passed by. Lest he die. But in our immortal, imperishable, resurrected, glorified bodies, we'll get to see him as he is and we'll be like him. A lot of Christians talk about how they're looking forward to seeing their loved ones in heaven. Maybe talk about seeing some of the, the great saints of old and that's all great. I'm looking forward to that too. But the greatest thing, the thing that makes heaven really heaven is the fact that we will see Jesus as he is. That's what I'm looking forward to. The presence of the Lord. So this is what we know about the future and what we will be. Let's look finally at the faithful and what we should be. Verse 13. It's a short, simple verse. It says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. First notice what it says there. Everyone who has this hope in him. It's really important. Maybe just underline in him. Because not only is our hope not in the world, but ultimately our hope is not even in heaven or in our inheritance. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's our hope, our confidence, our assurance of what is to come. Our hope is in him. He's the one that made it all possible. So we can look forward to those other things, but our hope is in him. David wrote in Psalm 39, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. This hope, or biblical hope, again, is not a wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident expectation. We know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of waiting until the time comes. That's biblical hope. Confident expectation. It's, it is in something future, yet this hope ought to change the way we live right now. Look again at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This, this, this relationship... This, this salvation that we have doesn't only change our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with sin too. We're no longer to pursue it in the way we once did in order to please our flesh. Because our deepest desire is to please God. That's the new creation. That's our new selves. Paul made this point in his second letter to the Corinthians and and it's the last verse in chapter 6 and the verse, first verse in chapter 7. And he's reflecting on an Old Testament promise where God said this, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. That's cool. That was looking forward to what we're reading about this morning. But then the very next verse, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. He's saying the same thing there, Paul is, as this passage in 1 John. God loves us so much that he gave his son for us. He adopted us into his family and one day he's going to conform us into the likeness of his son. We will be like Christ. You will be like Christ in some way, in many ways. And this ought to lead us to purify ourselves right now. I'd sum it up this way. When we know that our destiny is to be like Jesus, makes us want to be more like him now. Amen? 
When we start struggling with sin, we need to think about the fact God predestined, he determined beforehand that those who place their trust in Christ will be conformed into the likeness of his son. We will be like Christ. And this passage says this causes us to purify ourselves now, to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. So we're going to, this is, this is sanctification and we're going to see more about that in the verses that follow next time. There's a story told of a group of teenagers who were at a party and in the party, one of them suggested, let's go to a particular restaurant. We'll have a great time there. And one girl amongst those teenagers said, uh, I'd rather you took me home. Jen said to her date, my parents don't approve of that place. Are you afraid your father will hurt you? One of the girls said sarcastically. She said, no, I'm afraid I'll hurt my father. See, that's a heart that's been redeemed. We don't want to hurt God. He's loved us so much. His love is so vast and he's done so much for us. We don't want to hurt him. And so we don't cling to sin. We turn from it. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But we do everything in our power not to. We try not to. It still trips us up. But it's not our heart. We're not pursuing it. We're not living for that sinful lifestyle. We're living for God. A true child of God has experienced the love of God has no desire to sin against that love. Behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He not only sent his son to bring us salvation, but he adopts us into his family and gives us the full rights of sons. We have this close relationship with the Father. We have abundant eternal life. We share in the inheritance of Christ and will one day be conformed to the likeness of his son. Can you get your mind around that? Amazing, amazing, beautiful truth of the love of God. And this truth causes us to purify ourselves just as he is pure. Well, I want to close with the story. It's a story of adoption and it played out right here in our church. And when I think about being adopted into the family of God, I think about a young man named Marquise Huff. Many of you know the story. Many of you knew Marquise Huff. He, he was a young man from our church that lost his life in a tragic swimming accident in 2015. Some of you know the backstory. Marquise was born in 1997 in the city of Chicago. His mother was a drug addict and his father was in prison. At nine years old, his mother dropped him off at the front door of DC, DCFS. And she told him she was going to work but then she never returned. He just left him. She just left him there. And he entered the foster care system at nine years old. And five times over the next two years, he'd be placed in a foster family. Three of those families said, we're going to adopt you. And then they didn't. They backed out. Marquise was rejected again and again and again. Five failed placements in two and a half years. At 11 years old, the state took this picture of Marquise and they put him in a catalog of children that were up for adoption. Marquise was abandoned. He was longing for love and acceptance, security and hope. He told a friend he was looking for a quote, forever family. That's what he said. Meanwhile, the Huff family had been already fostering 14 children. They, they knew they wouldn't get to keep them for long, but they brought them into their home and they loved them like their own. 14 children. And as if that wasn't enough, they felt the Lord was leading them to do something more. And they felt that the Lord was leading them to reach across racial boundaries and adopt a child. And through a strange set of circumstances, they were told 
by, they were at an appointment, a doctor's appointment, and they were told about a little black boy who was looking for, quote, a white family to be his forever family. Now, the state was not too keen on interracial adoption. And so over a year, the Huffs had to fight for the right to welcome this little child into their home, even though they had never met him. All they had was a picture. For a year, they fought for the right to just meet this child and welcome him into their home. Finally, that opportunity came and the state set up a meeting between Marquise and the Hoffs. These would be his brothers and sisters. And for a boy who'd been rejected again and again, can you imagine how Marquise felt to learn that somebody cared about him and had been fighting for him for over a year? Somebody he haven't, hadn't even met? There'd be five more months of interviews and pre-placement screenings. They interviewed every member of the family multiple times as though they were trying to find a reason not to place Marquise in this family. And more than, well, finally in 2009, they, the Huffs, were given custody of Marquise. Just custody. And then more than two years later, they were able to finalize the adoption. And Marquise became Marquise Martin Hawkins Hoff. He had what he called his forever family. Now, some people may ask, well, how could a God of love allow such horrible things to happen to that little boy? And it's a fair question. God doesn't condone the drugs and the violence and the broken families and the selfish abandonment that surrounded Marquis as a boy. That's not God's plan for mankind. It breaks God's heart too. But the fact is every single one of us have sinned in other ways. Maybe some of the same, maybe different, but we've all sinned and our sin separates us from a righteous God. But the best part of the story is that Marquise learned that someone else had been fighting for him. Someone who, in an act of unimaginable love, sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. I was with Marquise in 2010. It was September, and we took a group to the Harvest Crusade in Chicago at the Allstate Arena. Some said crusade evangelism, that's a thing of the past. Nobody responds to that anymore. We took a group of students and adults and Marquise went forward and gave his life to the Lord along with several other students. He gave his life to the Lord and he became a child of God, a new creation in Christ. He found a true forever family. He was a child of God. And although he tragically lost his life at just 18 years of age, he had received the full rights of a son. Were it not for that decision Marquise made, he'd still be separated from God today eternally, but he's not. He's standing in the very presence of God right now, enjoying all that God has prepared for those who love him. I'll never forget the memorial service for Marquise. There, we had a student service, first of all, middle of the week, and there were uh, maybe 150 students who came, people he worked with at McDonald's, friends he came to know at school, and they came, and we had a time of, of worship and testimony. And then on the day of the visitation, there was a line out the door and through the gym and around the gym and out the door, over 700 people, friends and family members came to that visitation. And then the day of the memorial service, over 400 people came to that service. To this day, I think that was the most powerful time of worship I've ever experienced in my life. And there's a couple things I'll never forget about that service. I'll never forget Liz Hoff standing in front of the casket, absolutely brokenhearted and resting fully on the love of God to sustain her. And I'll never forget Bill standing in that aisle right there, sharing the gospel with these teenagers with tears streaming down his eyes. Sharing the love of Christ 
at this memorial service. One of those, one of those students after the service gave his life to the Lord in my office. He became part of God's family. Marquise was adopted into the family of God. And he, for the first time, had a true forever family. In addition to a family on earth. This is the hope we have in Christ. This is our hope. Do you have that hope? Some people here don't. Be honest with you. There's some people here that do not have that hope. They're still separated from God. They refused to come to him so far. And so they remained under his wrath. That's harsh. It sounds harsh. But the Bible says whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. God doesn't want that. It came that we might have eternal life. That we might be adopted into his family. Just spend some time this week. I'm meditating on how great is the love of the Father that we as believers should be called children of God. It's got to be one of the most beautiful truths we could ever know. Well, would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, I, I am amazed at the wonder, the wonder and the beauty and the scope of your infinite love. That you become a man and you would die so that we could become children of God. So that we might become part of your forever family. So we might have a purpose in life. So we might know what it means to really be loved and accepted and forgiven and clothed in righteousness. One day being like Christ himself by your power and your will and your grace alone. And so, God, I just thank you for the unbreakable promise that this passage represents. This blessing that would come by grace through faith and not through any work of our own. God, you did it all. Yet we have to receive it. God, if there's any here that have not come to a place of acknowledging their sin and confessing it and placing their faith in what you did on the cross, in your death, in your burial, in your resurrection. If they haven't come to that place, God, I pray that they would do it today. That they would surrender to your infinite love. That they'd no longer be under your blessing and wrath, God. But, or under your, under your judgment and wrath, but they'd be under your blessing, Lord. That they would receive the full rights as sons. And so, God, I pray that this passage, that we continue to meditate, that we behold the beauty of this truth, and that it would penetrate to the very core of our souls, God, and that it would change us. That as a result of this truth, God, that we would be pure, that we live pure lives before you because you are pure. That our greatest desire in life would be to please the Lord. And God, we want to do this for your kingdom and for your glory. And it's only by the name of Jesus that we can even pray this. And so we do in his name. Amen.